what I would like to talk about this evening is the, the living of our truths, our understanding. I think the ideas exist, unfortunately, in many people. A recurring tendency to want to measure and evaluate the state of one's inner being. And I think there's a recurring inclination born of that tendency to want to try to measure depth in our spiritual life, our spiritual journeys. And usually when we come to measure ourselves, we have particular yardsticks that we try to use to make those measurements. Sometimes we measure depth by the number of insights that we feel we've attained or seen. As we kind of keep a careful record of insights that have occurred. Sometimes we try to measure depth by the number of experiences we may have had or by the degree of calmness or quietness that we manage to achieve in our meditations. Now when we use these measurements, we usually do it in the context of a retreat because we tend to associate retreats as being the places where we deepen, where we increase in depth. And so retreats are often used in themselves as being a kind of yardstick in which to measure or try to measure progress or failure in our journey and exploration. Comparison, the tendency to compare, is really another rather unfortunate tendency of the mind. We have a variety of thoughts that tend to arise out of the comparing mind, despite the caution that we constantly hear not to compare anything. We have ideas of good. Good. What is a worthwhile retreat? Or what is a, a good meditation? Or what is a, a good sitting? Now, all the time we hear it mentioned that there's no such thing as a good sitting or as a good retreat. And that there's no such thing as a bad sitting or a bad retreat. And most people in meditation do, you know, nod their heads very wisely when they hear this and secretly believe that there is such a thing as a good sitting and a good retreat and a bad sitting and a bad retreat and have their own kind of way of calculating that. And within that belief system, those people have a, a very concrete picture, both of what a good sitting is and what a good retreat is, and an equally concrete picture of what a bad sitting and a bad retreat is. And, you know, you can look at people's faces through the day and you can almost tell by the expression on their faces whether they're having a good, a good sitting and a good day or whether they're having a bad sitting and a bad day, you know. 
And, of course, we have corresponding reactions of feelings that come in response to our evaluations. We show up in relationship to the good and down in relationship to the bad. Now, what is good? What is good in our minds? What is a good sitting? What is a good retreat? Sometimes we think we're doing very well when we feel we've got over something. We've got through something. We've cut through something. We've transcended something. This usually falls within the category of, of being good. When our minds are not too busy and not too much involved in dwelling or fantasy, we should really call this good. When we have a little bit of quietness or concentration, often we call this good. And we base certain conclusions, not only about our meditation, but about ourselves. Um, on the basis of these evaluations and comparisons, we feel we are deepening or we're regressing. Now, I think it is very clear that all of these measurements and all of these conclusions are actually completely unreal. That the spiritual life, a life of being awake, a life of understanding, can never actually be measured by experiences, neither it can be neither can it be measured by number of insights. Spiritual life or spiritual exploration can never be evaluated on the basis of quietness, on the basis of noise. It can't be evaluated on the basis of the presence or the absence of difficulty. No matter how high we are in the absence of difficulty or how low we are in the presence of difficulty. Depth can't be measured by attainment. This is, you know, so contrary to our conditioning that it's actually, I think, really quite hard for us to accept that depth cannot be measured by attainment. When I was in India, in a place called Rishikesh, there was um, used to be this time of the year where there was a kind of sadhu convention, sadhu with ascetics, there would be a kind of ascetics convention, and there would be this street and with all these stalls on it, these little kind of enclosures, and within every stall was a sadhu who was displaying his attainment of the year. So you would kind of go through these stalls, a bit like sort of New Age exhibition London or something, and look at what people had done in the year. And one man, one sadhu would have a sign up and a picture, you know, of him, uh, you know, standing on one leg, and he'd say, you know, I've been standing on one leg for four years. I would say, and the next one, he'd come and there'd be a sadhu lying on a bed of thorns, you know, and they'd have a, a little sign up saying, you know, how long you've been lying on a bed of thorns, you know, and then the next one, you know, would say, you know, he kept silence for 12 years, and you know, it's sort of one after another, all these wonderful kind of attainments, you know, and people would go and visit and be very impressed and awed by all this kind of achievement. And then lunchtime would come, where, you know, these people would bring lunch to service sadhus, and suddenly there would be this kind of stampede out of sadhu alley, and everybody would be jostling to get to the pans first and to get to the food first. And I would think, well, you know, what really is this all about? You know, what really is this all about? And sometimes I think, you know, we, <coughs> we don't do that, of course, and think of doing that, but 
you know, we have our own way of carrying trophies, collecting trophies, as if they have something to do with who we are. They don't. The only way that a spiritual life can actually be measured, if it can be measured at all, is in our capacity to live it. To live in accord with what we understand to be true and with what we value. Matthew, the depth in a spiritual life is actually there at that point where our lives become a very visible expression of what we understand, of compassion, of wisdom. But actually when there's no separation between insight and the living of it, then we live wisely. We don't try to live a spiritual life. We are an embodiment. We become an embodiment of what we understand to be true. There's a merging of wisdom and of action. And in that merging, what is really being made visible is that our understanding is actually making a difference in our lives. It is touching every level of our being and our lives, our livelihood, our relationships, our choices and directions that we're not actually making any distinctions anymore between what is a spiritual life and what is a worldly life. When we're actually able to drop these distinctions, we become much freer. And we really deeply understand that there is nothing that is excluded from awareness and that there is nothing that is exempt from awareness. I, I actually feel this is a very kind of profound breakthrough. You know, it's so easy for us to live with distinctions, to live with this mind that is always making divisions. To say, oh yes, you know, here I sit and I put all my energy into being so clear and then I go out and I have no idea where my shoes are, you know, and I track mud through the house and, you know, and I slam the door and I say, well, that doesn't matter. That's not my meditation. I'm on my way to do a walking. You know, somewhere the mind is making these distinctions about what is worthy and unworthy, what is spiritual and what is worldly. And those distinctions actually really imprison us. Because we're trying with those, or we do perhaps even with those distinctions, learn to compartmentalize sensitivity. Just as we perhaps try to compartmentalize compassion or understanding, a generosity, a giving, or awareness. And although we may try to do that, every time we try to compartmentalize, of course, we are caught in a struggle because we're caught in a false duality, we're caught in a false division. And actually, there isn't such a thing as, as conditional sensitivity. True compassion isn't conditional compassion. True wakefulness can't actually be a conditional wakefulness. In some ways, it is when we are really willing to set aside our conditions. There's some very important shift in that. In, way, in a way, it's, it's a surrender of, of I in many ways. It's a surrender of division, which is a surrender of separation, a surrender of self, because when we have conditions, we always have some sort of investment in those conditions.
often feel it is a very sad thing when people come on retreats and they come to some very profound depths of sensitivity and clarity and openness. And then there arises this strange anxiety. And the thought that's born of that anxiety is, how am I going to maintain this? How am I going to maintain it? And then, of course, the usual consequence of that thought is to leave a retreat and to feel that one loses it, to lo- that we lose insight, so that there's a process of erosion that happens where our insight gradually gets kind of eroded away until we hit bottom and then we have to do another retreat in order to recharge our spiritual batteries. This process is actually so unnecessary. The moment when we begin to think of maintaining something, well, we are in the first steps of losing it, in the first stages of loss. Because maintaining can only ever be born of a thought or a way of seeing that is regarding insight, clarity, compassion as some kind of static objects that belong to me, that are my possessions that I have gained, rather than the real question of how can I live this? How do I live this? What does compassion look like in my life? What does letting go actually look like in my meditation? What does sensitivity actually look like in the, in the usual flow of my habits? What does openness actually look like in the face of, of defensiveness or contraction? These are the questions I think that actually bring vitality to this journey and exploration that we are returning again and again to now, to this moment, not lingering or harkening back to what is already past, not trying to treasure some kind of achievement, but bringing ourselves again and again to just right now, these very real situations, these very real contacts, these very real interactions that invite us to be awake, invite us to be present, and invite us to call forth from within, from within the, ourselves the deepest levels of our being, our capacities for patience and compassion. If we look at anything as static as a possession, we will lose it. And we may then look back to the past with fond memories, but that is not very comforting in moments of conflict or moments of stress to have only fond memories of how I used to be. And really there's nothing more depressing than reunions of old yogis, you know, where they get together and kind of, you know, think back to, you know, that wonderful <laughs> retreat in 87 and that fantastic insight into impermanence, you know. And that moment in 90, you know, that real breakthrough into silence, you know. And you know, swapping kind of memories, you know, like old photos. I mean, it's just so depressing. You know, the beginning of retreats sometimes, I mean, hear people's conversations, you know, they think, well, what about now? We don't want to be veterans. 
That could be a resolution. I will never be a veteran. I will never be an old yogi. I will always be a newborn. It would be a wonderful resolution to make. Insight that is not lived doesn't actually become lost. It doesn't actually, it's quite impossible to lose insight. It actually truly is impossible. But insight that is not lived, of course, because it is not alive and vital, then what has power in that moment is the power of the weight of all patterns and tendencies and conditioning. This is obvious. This is obvious. It's obvious in our experience in this moment. When we are not awake, we have a mind which is really vulnerable to being a foothold for reaction and for very conditioned ways of seeing. We see this in our meditation. You know, sometimes you sit and, you know, you have some really charged images arise or thoughts or feelings and, you know, there's this feeling, oh no, why me, you know, and, you know, what am I going to do with all this and it's so terrible. We have another sitting an hour later, we have exactly the same images and thoughts and feelings arise and there's this feeling of them just kind of flowing through and, you know, they're transparent and, you know, it's no big issue, you know, we're not called upon to be... What has changed here is not the content. What has changed is the quality of consciousness. That's what has changed. It's the quality of consciousness. Time didn't necessarily have anything to do with that transformation. What allows that transformation really to take place is the degree of connection we feel with what is true, what is enduring, what is clear and aware within ourselves not connected with that quality of clarity possible within us, then we find ourselves yes, very much tied up in desire and aversion and liking and disliking. You know, and sometimes we have the, the thought, oh, you know, gee, I lost my insight somewhere, you know, I lost it on the bus or I lost it on the train or I lost it in Southampton. But, you know, we really need to ask ourselves, you know, have we really lost our insight? Where are they? Where are they? You know, have we really lost them? Or is the more valid question to ask ourselves is how much are we willing to live in accord with our insight and with our understanding? This is, you know, the question, this is the question in our life. This is the $64 question in our life. How much are we willing to live in accord with our understanding? With what we know to be true, with what we know to be liberating and freeing, with what we know that brings clarity and consciousness and connection, how much are we willing to live in accord with that and how much do we not lose that, but actually give it away and sacrifice it on the altar of some more compelling desire, such as pleasure, or security, or control, 
our power, our safety, our comfort? What are the really compelling desires upon whose altar we actually sacrifice insight? Then I think to take those questions a little bit further is to be really willing to ask ourselves, do we really wish to continue to do that? Do we really wish to continue to do that, knowing full well the consequences of that sacrifice? Because the consequences of that sacrifice truly are limitation and imprisonment and confusion and conflict and sorrow. Then we really, this is a very, kind of very deep level of questioning. Do we really want to make those choices in our lives? To have more sorrows and freedom? To have more division and connection? To have more confusion and clarity? To have more imprisonment than, than openness? I think, I really do feel that these are the questions that this exploration and this life is really concerned with. I know sometimes it feels like it's, you know, it's out of our hands, that I can't bring about these changes. Sometimes that may be true. Sometimes we do get lost, and sometimes we do get overwhelmed, and sometimes we do kind of flounder. But I actually believe that our very presence here, I actually believe that anyone who manages to make it onto a cushion on one retreat has actually has within them the inner empowerment to actually make clear choices in their life, to nurture their own capacity for awareness and wakefulness to see clearly. I don't think it actually needs any more than that. I think, you know, if you've managed to make it onto a cushion once in your life, you have everything you need to start again, even when you do get lost, to begin anew, even when you do flounder. We speak so much about insight as it being a transforming power, and it is. Understanding truly does transform our lives so totally and can transform our lives so in such a powerful way that we really do live wisely and make wise choices and wise relationships but this is not necessarily you know we don't have to have you know huge revelations of insight sometimes it's true that insight does come as a sort of very dramatic breakthrough but most insight is not dramatic. Most insight is a very quiet deepening of understanding. Sometimes we don't even know that there's been some level of insight until we go into a situation that previously has been quite charged for us. We suddenly realize the charge is gone. It's not there anymore. We are not the same person anymore with the same reactions. Something has changed and altered through understanding. Most insight just is very simply born of being present. It's no big deal. It's just born of simply being present. When we're present, we see things become clear for us. 
just become careful as we have the patience just to be still and to see everything we need to understand becomes very clear to us. We see what moves us, what governs us. We see tendencies that are linked to the past that manifest in the present. We see the nature of contraction and the nature of construction. And in seeing, we just suddenly find we're less bound. It's a, it's a kind of uh, understanding as a mysterious unfoldment. We can't have, we don't even recognize any point in there where we say, you know, I'm not going to do that anymore. It doesn't happen on that kind of conscious level. So simply onward, inwardly, through the seeing and through the no longer consenting to imprisonment, through no longer being uh, willing to, to collude in, in limitation, we find simply that the insight, the understanding, is bringing change. We feel less bound. We feel less, there's less identification. We see that happening on a personal level. We see a deepening and understanding on, on a more universal level of the nature of existence. We really do see very experientially change in the emptiness of self. All of this insight is so accessible to us. You think how little time one actually needs to give to see clearly. I find it startling. I absolutely startling. How little time we actually need to give in order to see clearly. You know, we shouldn't give years to building up confusion. And yet it actually really takes so little time to see clearly. Time's not really the factor. The factor is, of course, the dedication we, we bring to being present and to seeing. Now, it's never enough to make lists of insight. Really, the crucial question is to really be able to see what the purpose of insight is. I mean, why? Why deepen an understanding? Why, why deepen in clarity? And the purpose of the direction of insight is very simple. It's to be awake, it's to end pain and limitation. It enables us to grow into the fullness of our own potential, to live as a loving, as a clear, as a compassionate human being who walks lightly in this world. Insight is to enable us to live in harmony with our own being, with the world around us. And this is what insight insight does touches our lives, it touches our worlds and it transforms them, transforms them. The insight, the understanding is not difficult to access. But in some way that is the easiest part of transformation. In some way insight is actually the easiest part of seeing and of transformation. The much harder part is to live in accord with what we see. And this requires another step of inquiry, another step of exploration. We know actually that it's not difficult for us to see what causes suffering in our lives. We've talked about this already, you know, how little time it would take us to, to make a list of what causes suffering. How little time it would take us to make a list of what, what really empowers us and brings freedom. 
The inside is not hard. The inside is really not hard. Much harder is actually the living of it. And yet it is the living of understanding that is where transformation lies. It is one of the most painful things in the world is not to live in accord with what we know to be true. This is actually one of the painful things in the world for an aware person is not to live in accord with what we know to be true. It makes us feel as if we are dishonoring ourselves, that we are in some way frustrating or colluding in our own limitations, some ways not living in accord with not with what we understand to be true. We feel deeply mistrustful of ourselves. We feel like, you know, do I really trust my own understanding if I can't live it? There are so many times when we find ourselves involved in reactions that we know bring distortion or pain and we feel unable to stop them. There are so many times when we find ourselves in the midst of saying something which is hurtful or alienating and we would like to stop, but it's like there's this freeway that exists between our minds and our reactions, you know, and the words fall from our mouths seemingly without any interruption. There's so many times when we fall into the habits of self-judgment, of blame. We know it undermines us, and yet we find ourselves continuing to play those tapes. There are times when we regret things that we've said or done or thought, and we resolve, I will never do that again, only to find the next minute we're doing it again. It's not a lack of insight that leads us to be bound to old and familiar patterns. There are other factors that really inhibit us living in accord with what we know to be true. Now one of the factors that really inhibits us living in accord with what we know to be true is the factor of avoidance. Basically the factor of avoidance, the lack of the lack of clear connection, the, the absence of being wholeheartedly present, because when we are not, reactions find a foothold in the consciousness. Another factor, a really powerful factor that prevents us from living in accord with what we understand to be true, is pleasure. Pleasure is a big deal in our lives. What is pleasant? How do I get it? How do I keep it? How do I get more of it? How do I make it mine? Where do I find it? The pursuit of pleasure can be so constant in our experience, from finding the most comfortable meditation posture to the most, you know, the fullest stomach, the most gratified mind, the the most uh, satisfying relationship. I mean, the pursuit of pleasure can be, of course, as one of our primary addictions. And pleasure is such a big deal in our lives because as long as we're tied up in the pursuit of the pleasant and the comfortable, we are equally tied up in distraction, the desire for distraction, the desire for numbness, 
when our desire for pleasure isn't gratified, we're equally tied up in aversion and resistance. So pleasure, you know, just impact the the addiction to the pleasant sensation, the pleasant experience, the pleasant mind state, the pleasant anything, is a compelling factor of limitation. It's so much really gets in the way of renunciation, to put it mildly, you know. I mean, renunciation hardly seems like a very attractive option when we are caught up in filling ourselves up. The third factor is the factor of habit. Habit is also a powerful inhibiting factor when it comes to living in accord with what we know to be true. The habits of our minds, the habits of our lives, the habits of our our reactions, the habits that lead us into this incredibly dull world of knowing everything. I'd like to read you a, <coughs> a short story some of you have heard. But if you're really living with a not-knowing mind, of course you are very willing to hear it again. I have a friend, a woman I know already many years. One day she's mad at me. From nowhere it comes. I have insulted her, she tells me. How? I don't know. Why don't I know? Because I don't know her. She surprised me. That's good. That's how it should be. You cannot tell someone I know you. People jump around. They're like a ball. Robbery, they bounce. A ball cannot be long in one place. Robbery, it must jump. So what do you do to keep a person from jumping? The same as with a ball. You take a pin and stick it in, make a little hole, it goes flat. When you tell someone, I know you, you put a little pin in. So what should you do? Leave them be. Don't try to make them stand still for your convenience. You don't ever know them. Let people surprise you. This likewise you could do concerning yourself. Just about not being caught up in habits. Now, habit and the craving for pleasure really, of course, have a foundation upon a lack of clear connection. Clear attention, clear sense of being present. As long as the clear connection is not there, what arises out of the absence of clear connection is feeling that something is missing. When we are not clearly present, Clearly connected in a very unconditional, open way with this moment, we often feel like something is missing. We get this demon of the hungry mind. The hungry mind is the most clear expression of alienation from the present moment. The hungry mind is always roaming. It's roaming, it's searching, it's looking for some way to fill itself up. And what we are trying to fill up is a feeling of inner emptiness or deprivation. I need something. I need something. It is like, a, like an infant 
you know that exists with its mouth open, just waiting. I need something. This hungry mind that is disconnected from the present, so disconnected from richness, and then is always looking in the world, around, everywhere, for some way to fill up that vacuum and that hole. That hungry mind is only existing in an atmosphere and a climate of alienation. Only, ever. If you have a look at your experience here when the mind is the most hungry, the most seeking, how content are we really in that moment? How connected do we really feel in that moment? How present do we really feel? How sensitive do we really feel? Often not too much. So it's circling for a very poor substitute, a sensation, or hopefully a series of sensations. It's what we hope for. Not just one, but a series, a continuity of sensations. That is what we're circling for. You know, no richness, aha, well, let's try a little tickle in the consciousness, you know, from getting something. And so the mind is on the loose, like a hungry beast, always looking for something to consume. Well, we're pretty much enslaved when we're in that state. Pretty much enslaved by circumstances, by anything that seems to hold a bit of promise. We're pretty much enslaved by fear, fear of losing, fear of deprivation. We're pretty much enslaved by aversion and rejection. It's not a good climate for wakefulness. It's not a good climate for awareness. Somewhere we just need to stop and say, this is not working, this is not going to work. This is not enough. I'm not willing to sacrifice any more freedom from the four in exchange for a few sensations. At some point we need to say that. Then, of course, then greed begins to fall away. Hunger begins to fall away. We're much more willing to be unconditionally present to see that that unconditional nature of wakefulness is actually the doorway to richness, to true sense of completeness and wholeness within our own being and within this, uh, within this moment. But somewhere the stopping has to come first. The stopping actually has to come first to say, enough, I've traveled this path, I've done this journey, I've been through this map, I've been to the destination a thousand times, a million times. And I'm not convinced anymore that it's worth it. It doesn't mean we have to go around pursuing pain. It doesn't mean that we have to go around avoiding pleasure. But it means some willingness just to stop in that kind of endless and relentless search for something outside of ourselves which we can never actually find. A kind of completion which we can never actually find through consumption, whether it is the hunger for experience, or the hunger for food, or the hunger for gratification. It is all the same. It is all this craving for completion in places where it cannot be found. At some point we have to say enough. That's actually an expression of having a passion for freedom and a passion for wakefulness that we are really willing to have that change of heart and to say no more that this is really enough then we can really be present because there is so much passion so much wholeheartedness behind it 
Habit too is the inevitable shadow of a lack of clear connection. Habit we are constantly drawn into the superficial, into the only what first meets our, our sense to us. The more habitual we become, of course, the more disconnected we feel. And again, habit is not a life sentence. We don't have a life, nobody's sentence to be habitual. What does it take to start being habitual? What does it take? It's really easy to start being habitual. It is really easy. I mean, if you walk out, if, we, if any of us walk out of this room, you know, we have this moment, a new encounter, and we're going to put on our shoes. Well, we can, you know, quite easily put on our shoes with our minds already at the tea urn and filling up a cup of tea. And, we, you know, we can put on our shoes perfectly adequately. You know, we managed to get there. Or we can put on our shoes totally. There is no habit. It doesn't take much to dissolve habit. Really, it takes so little. It just takes, really, actually, a willingness to be awake, to be responsive, to be present. No, no, not the desire for pleasure, not the hunger for pleasure, not habit, not disconnection. None of these things are life sentences. They all end. They all end. What is required for their ending is not necessarily more time on a meditation cushion. It's not necessarily more time at all. It's not necessarily more practice. What is required for their ending, of course, is a total wholeheartedness and passion for being awake. That may seem too simple. It may seem too simple, it may seem, you know, fast, I have to work things out, you know, and get better, but actually, it's not too simple. If the more the passion we have for being awake is what allows us to be awake. If we love being clear in our lives more than anything else, we are clear. If we love being awake in our lives, more than any sensations, then we'll be awake. And somewhere there is the, the, the inner willingness to let our own understanding mature, to see what is really being offered to us in this exploration. Not the small gains of being a better person or having a new improved model of self, but the very profound transformations that are actually being offered to us in this exploration. And to have such a dedication. Dedication that is expressed in patience and compassion, the willingness to start again. But all of those are simply the expression of the same dedication. The same dedication to being free, to being awake. May all be live with awareness. May all be live with clarity. May all be live with wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.